Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages 1 to 17 and two PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and a program director. And I'm an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, we've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to counter our own isolation and hopefully connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears for about the next hour. All right. So Judith, how are things? What's been happening in your part of the world this week? It's been interesting. I think the last couple of times I've talked about tentatively being excited about the kids being back in school. And as I sort of anticipated, that didn't last very long. Uh, not to go into too much detail, but my daughter had an exposure at school. And so we all had to quarantine for 10 days. So I'm just at the tail end of that. So when people are listening to this episode, I'll be back to hopefully everybody in school. So we'll see how that goes. So I was home again with all three of my kids and have tried to make the best of that time, have enjoyed playing some games with my four-year-old son, which has been fun. But otherwise, just doing the same old. And as you've mentioned, the winter here is difficult. It's been very harsh. The weather has been very harsh. So some of these days would have been snow days, probably otherwise, um, where it would have been enjoyable and kind of fun to just be cooped up inside and play board games. But it's definitely kind of getting old a little bit. How about you? You know what? That's funny. We had a snow day as well. And I was like, kids, it's not really (laughs) special anymore, is it? Right? It's like you've been at home so much. It's like, woo, snow day. And it is. It's so cold here in Michigan. I don't know what the translation is to Celsius, but we're in like the 15 degrees um, Fahrenheit. It was 11 the other day when I got everyone ready for school. It is. It's bitter cold. And so I know some people... I am friends with go out jogging and running and I'm just always so impressed. I'm like, I can't even walk outside. I don't know how you're going for like a 10 mile run right now. That is like, it blows my mind. And so it's kind of hard to deal with those winter blahs. We've been in school now for the last couple of weeks. I'm starting the third week of this semester. So everything's kind of underway there. It's busy. It's always that busy first part of the year where I'm trying to set everything up. And amongst all this, I actually got a rejection email for a proposed book chapter. And this is something I'd actually talk to you a little bit about because I'd asked you earlier on, They the uh, folks that were editing it said they wanted me to resubmit a longer and more detailed abstract. So it was actually a fairly time-consuming process. But I got the rejection and it really got me thinking about how we could talk about this for our podcast just because it is such a large and really stressful part of what we do in our fields. I thought it'd be kind of interesting and maybe helpful for people out there that are at different stages in their careers to think about all the different types of rejections we can encounter, how we face them, but also how to deal with it and possibly even learn and grow from it. So it's not just a purely negative experience. Absolutely. I thought when you suggested this topic that this would be really interesting to talk about as well. There are so many different areas too, not just publications, um, but obviously also the job market. And then this is clearly also something that 
is very relevant for our kids, right? My daughter just recently had some sort of art contest at school and she was working on something. And in the middle of it, she was like, oh, I'm just not going to even submit it at all because I'm not going to get selected anyway. So even that fear of rejection, I think already is something that our kids are dealing with. And so this is a topic that really spans the gamut of everything that we're talking about on this podcast. So I think this is an excellent choice of topic and I'm excited to talk to you about it today. Do you want to share a little bit more before we dive in about this latest rejection? Sure. I think maybe I can use this as sort of a catharsis group group therapy (laughs) with you and our listeners. But it was a book chapter and it was because I felt like the need to sort of start a new project. And a lot of times when I'm feeling that need, I just sort of raid the calls for papers and try to find something that connects with something else that I've been thinking about recently. So I have been writing a lot about popular culture lately just because, like I told you before, maybe a few months ago, I never want to feel like my binging um, behaviors are being, you know, just lazy. <laughs> no, 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 no. You did. If I write about it, then I'm being a scholar. So I had binge watched a show, Hannah or Hannah on Amazon. It's a really good show. And I thought, oh, you know what? I'll write about that. And so I found an abstract that kind of worked with it. I mean, it kind of did. I wasn't 100% sure about the fit, but I thought, you know, I think I can make this work. I have some really good ideas about the show, and I think it kind of fits within the theme that these editors are looking for. So I did send in an abstract all the way back in early November. And I was thinking, oh, that would be perfect timing because hopefully by December, I'll hear back and I can get started on the chapter. I really like to try to do my work over the breaks when we have two, three, four weeks off that I can just dedicate to thinking about the chapter, if that makes sense. So I'm not planning for class or anything like that. But that being said, I didn't really hear anything for a little bit. And then at the end of November, they said, well, could you kind of write an extended abstract? Add more to this. We want to see where you're going. And we need it in about a week. So I felt really rushed and pressured. And this is a trap that I've fallen into before where I think I rush through things and I'm not as thoughtful as I could be. So I was like, okay, I'll add more. I know that it was very derivative. I knew this already. They were like, well, what theoretical point of view are you taking? I I know that there were some problems in that writing. But anyway, I sent it back and then there was just like silence, silence, silence. I even... I think asked you, I was like, do you think I should contact them just to see if everything's okay? I contacted them maybe mid-December and they said, well, we're still looking at things. And so then I finally heard just the other day, I didn't get in. And, you know, it was a lot of waiting around. I initially felt a little upset about it, but then I'm like, the timing is off now anyway, because like I said, I figured I'd hear sometime in December, get started on that chapter and really have time to work on it. Maybe in the late weeks of December, early January, that was what my plan was. So now it's like, now it's February, practically, I wouldn't have had the time to dedicate and I can't really do a lot of scholarly writing when I'm teaching four classes. It just doesn't work out for me. So I think I'm trying to frame this in a positive way. I also feel like now that I did that extended abstract, I do already have eight pages written. It's coherent. It's not just notes and blurbs. It's actually eight pages of writing. So that's something. And I reframed it as a possible conference paper. I know there are some problems with the writing. I actually kind of sensed that when I went back and looked at it after the fact. But it's still always so hard for me. I still kind of always feel like, ah, they didn't want me. It wasn't good enough. And that's hard for me. But I also learned a lesson here, which is like, if it doesn't really truly fit within that call for papers, it's probably not going to work. I think that we're still dealing with an issue of timing. And I don't think my prose is 100% 
while I'm trying to do this in the pandemic. And so there's still that challenge as well. So this was like the latest in a string of these (laughs) rejections we go through. And, you know, it's probably going to be fine in the long run. But right now, there's still a little bit of that sting, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And it sounds like you're already sort of thinking about how to turn it into something positive. And I think with an eight page draft, you do have that's the length of the conference paper, at least. So, you know, it's much easier to to pitch this now as a potential conference presentation and not have to worry so much about where is this magical paper going to come from, which sometimes happens when you submit a conference proposal without really knowing what the paper is going to be. But I do want to sit a little bit with the frustration and the disappointment because I do get that. And I think that that's an important experience in this whole process. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. And even if you can go back and tell yourself, well, it probably wasn't a great fit or it probably wasn't quite entirely what it needed to be. I do like I do think that it makes sense to sit with that a little bit and allow yourself to to be frustrated and be upset, even though um, you are already thinking about how to turn that into something positive. Right. So the one thing that I think is really difficult about that, too, is the long silence. And I do remember talking to you about this as this was happening, that you weren't hearing from them. And and this is something that's so difficult, especially in the pandemic, because everybody's timelines are off, right? Everybody is like planning for things to go a certain way. And then there is a school out you know, a school's out or whatever and and delays are happening. And that silence I always feel is really difficult and challenging. And I felt that way too on the job market. Whenever you send out a job application, it can be, especially on the academic job market, it can be months before you hear back from them because a lot of times uh, these places won't, you know, send you a rejection letter right when they made their initial selection of candidates, but at the end of the process, when the entire process is complete. And as we all know, that process sometimes takes six, seven, eight months. And so that's how long it can take to get that rejection. And I always feel that that silence is really hard to handle. So I'm sorry that that happened. I do. I am excited to see that you're sort of thinking about how to move forward and how to sort of gear it into a different direction. Um, So that's great. I had a similar experience with a rejection where I was sub- where I had submitted a seminar paper to a journal and it was just sort of I think we had been sort of encouraged by different faculty in our department to just start sending things out and see what happened and it was the same scenario where I was like I know this is probably a little derivative and th- it was just sort of applying different concepts that we talked about in the class to a television show. This was also a pop culture paper. This was on the first like couple seasons of The Walking Dead, which was it's always risky, I feel like, to talk about or to write a paper on a series that is still ongoing or where you're just like the first one or two seasons because the walking dead took such a drastic turn that like even if it had been a stronger paper by the time it had published it probably wouldn't be very representative a very representative argument about the show anymore but yeah that i think it was sent out to a reviewer which is which was good that's a good first step but they did come back and say this this reads like a seminar paper and so i had to sort of do the same thing and be like yeah i 
kind of knew that. I just followed, you know, the recommendation of the people in the department. And and then I got that feedback that was not that unexpected. And I think that I didn't really have the gusto to go back and say, what can I do with this? How can I turn this into something that would actually be a journal article? I think I wasn't passionate about enough about that particular piece to actually move that forward. But I definitely know the feeling of, you know, even though you know, it still really stings when you do get that rejection. Absolutely. And I've had it before. Obviously, I tried some things early on. Then you always have rejections where I had one. It's so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm going to say this. But like they said, my ideas were really great, but it was so poorly (laughs) proofread that they weren't even going to give it like the time of day. And this was this was in my master's program. And I subsequently did get published in that journal, but I was just like, oh boy, that's <laughs> embarrassing. You know, there's just like, there's just so many grammar issues and I don't know what I was thinking. I think I just sent it in. I, I did it for a class. I wrote it for a class and I just sent it all off because I was so proud of it. And right. that was a weird rejection letter to get. And like, we're not even going to look at this because it's just so messy. Um, at the same time, <laughs> that's a really easy fix, right? Like you can send, you can, you can clean that up and send it somewhere else. If they don't invite you to to resubmit it, you can. That's something that you can fairly easily fix, and then still get that feedback from somewhere else. But again, you have to sort of pick yourself up and and you know be look at be able to look at it and do those edits without thinking at every turn. You know, oh, how did I even? think that I could send this out kind of thing. Right. The other side to that is that then this is also embarrassing. My master's thesis on Jane Austen was sent out and they said that writing was impeccable, but there was not an original idea in any of it. So (laughs) I don't know that that's, I don't know which problem is worse to have. And I have worked with students in the writing centers, sometimes graduate students, but they were usually students who did not speak English as their first language. And so we did actually work with that sometimes. And the student I remember, because I was working with her outside of class and outside of the writing center, she was from China and was doing great work, but she just needed help with all those small little details with the grammar and spelling and things right. like that. And I think it's definitely harder to put in an original idea if there isn't one, right? I think it's easier to clean up writing and fix the grammar if they're saying the ideas are there than to than to add an idea that you didn't maybe originally have or whatever. And I think that's fine for a master's thesis. I don't think that that's necessarily a huge issue for what it was, for what the what the piece of writing was. It just might mean, you know, it's not ready to be sent out into the world, maybe. I wasn't there yet. But while right. we're thinking about writing, I think you're in a really unique perspective because you do work as an acquisitions editor. And I wondered if you could tell our listeners and maybe even me about why sometimes you end up rejecting book projects. I think that'd be really useful information for folks that are considering or trying to get into publishing their projects. Like what leads you to say no to some things? I think that's a really important question. And I recently saw a tweet by somebody who helps people write book proposals. And she said, if you've spent a lot of time on a book proposal and you've gotten feedback and everything and you get a really quick rejection from a press, then it's probably a matter of fit. And I can only second that. I think that's a very apt statement. The number one reason I think why we decide against taking on particular projects is because the target audience doesn't fit. Um, So you want to make sure if you submit something somewhere 
that you spend a little bit of time thinking about who are these people addressing? If it's a press, what are the disciplines that they're publishing in? What are, how are they marketing their books? Where are they advertising? Who are they selling to? That kind of thing. That's the most, uh, most significant mismatch that we see, I think, in proposals. It's not the only one, but that's the number one uh, concern. And I think the same goes for journal articles. Um, the one, the most successful uh, one that I ever sent out was a journal article where I was able to point to other articles from the same journal that had engaged similar material that I was drawing on in my paper so that I could sort of say, here's here are the papers that you previously published that I'm in conversation with. And so I think that's something to keep in mind, both for publishing books and for publishing articles. And when you're looking at journals, I think it's a little bit more... Um, more specific even than just looking at discipline. You can have different gender studies journal, journals that still deal with particular subject matters or something like that. And so I think if you get a quick rejection, but you do kind of feel confident or you've gotten some good feedback about the paper, it's not to say that the rejection doesn't still sting, but if you can put it away for a day or two and then say, maybe, you know, what happens if I send it somewhere else? I think that's a that's a good way to approach that. And that's a good way to think about those kinds of rejections. Again, the, the timeline, of course, makes that difficult because especially journals can take a long time to give you that feedback. And you're not necessarily always allowed to send it out to different journals at the same time. So that's something to look into. But generally speaking, if you don't get the feedback that it's not academic enough or that the scholarly quality isn't there, I would always say, you know, okay, who are, who am I targeting and who is this journal targeting? And might there be another journal out there that's a better fit just in terms of who they're speaking to? So that's, that's the one thing that I would say in this context, but what about all of the other rejections that a person might expect throughout their academic career? We've already alluded to some of them earlier. Erin, have you dealt with other rejections? For example, maybe we can talk about applications next. Have you applied for anything and have dealt with rejections in those scenarios? Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. And I'm actually, I want to say that we're both really successful in our field and our career choices, but it sounds like when you're listening to this, wow, you've gone through a lot, which is a good message of resilience, I suppose. I was thinking about this and how during maybe our second year as teaching assistants, I actually got nominated for a university teaching award from our department. I believe it's called the Heberline Teaching Award, which was a really big deal. And I had to go through and create this dossier, this like 50 page project outlining, you know, everything I'd done. And it was really, really awesome. And I was like, oh, man, that's going to be so cool. Like, this is going to be such an honor for our department and for our advisor. And I'm so excited. And I didn't get it. And so <laughs> that was kind of a big letdown. And I know other people, I believe Elisa, who we had on, she was nominated and did win. And I was like, um, I wonder what I did wrong. You know, I just wonder what was missing from my packet or my materials because I had the confidence of the department. Like I was the person they nominated, which was so neat and such an honor in and of itself. But I didn't get the awards. I think throughout the whole college, you know, through all the disciplines, only two or three people get selected. So I didn't get that. And I just felt 
kind of forlorn and like, what did I do wrong? I don't know. I had worked with a faculty mentor putting it together. He said everything looked good. So, I mean, I I don't know. I just, it's something that I'm always going to wonder about, right? And then I was also thinking about all the jobs, all the job applications. <laughs> all the jobs. Yeah. <sighs> and like you said, you know, sometimes it's so weird. You don't hear anything. It's like, did you get my materials? Could you send a confirmation? We got them. We looked at them and you're not making the cut. Sometimes that silence can be deafening. Then there's even the worst when they're like, okay, we like what you saw. Now send us this. And I had one of those one time. And again, I remember because I feel like I sent this to you like, oh my gosh, they actually asked me now for my teaching philosophy. But like, what did I bungle there? What was it in my teaching philosophy that didn't quite match up with their values at that college? I don't no. And then there's this other whole side note of what happens when we start to apply for jobs that are not in academia. And I think that's something that I'm hoping you can talk a little bit more about. But I have on and off had a few job interviews for jobs that are not, quote, you know, professorial. I'm not teaching. And I feel like I'm really ill-equipped to talk in those interviews now because I'm so used to thinking about, let me explain my research, let me explain my teaching philosophy, that in some interviews, they're throwing me a softball like, tell us about your mentorship style. And I'm like, um, uh, it's good. I don't know. Like I'm a good mentor. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I informally mentor faculty all the time, but I don't have carry the title of like faculty mentor, but I do that all the time working with faculty who have questions, comments, and certainly now I'm talking about it and it sounds great. But on the spot, it's just such a different style of interview. They're asking all these things that I'm just not used to. So when I've gone out on some of those alt-ac job interviews, I felt a little, if you can believe it, tongue-tied. I didn't know what to say. Um, And so that kind of has thrown me for a loop. Also, I remember right after my BA where I went out, And I remember the one woman said, I'm not going to hire you for this job because this is not a good fit for you. It was like a media buying job. It wasn't a media writing job. And it was like someone that would have to buy and sell ad space. And she's like, I just know you're not going to like this job. You're going to be miserable. It's going to be very boring to you. This isn't the kind of media that you're interested in. And so she flat out told me in the interview, and I was like, yeah, but I really need a job. And she was like, well, what to say? You're not just going to quit when the next thing comes along that is more related to what you want to do, which is exactly what I would have done. So I, I remember that rejection pretty clearly as well. Right. And I've had conversations too with potential employers where they basically told me that they don't routinely hire people with PhDs because they assume that they're just taking this job until they get the tenure track job that they're really after. And so that can sometimes be a reason that our resumes don't get picked up if we apply for those jobs outside of the academy. And in that scenario, it was very helpful for me to have informational interviews. And I think networking is really core in that context so that you have the opportunity to really talk to the potential employer about your interest in the job and why it is that you are applying for that job rather than um, academic jobs, if that is the case. So that was something that I encountered or that at least one person made explicit to me. And so I assume that many of the jobs where 
I didn't get a call back or I didn't get and I didn't end up getting the job that that was a concern that the potential employer had that I was just sort of using that as an opportunity to carry myself over until the actual opportunity that I was after was coming my way. So that's something to keep in mind. I think the question of fit is so important, right? The question and sometimes and I've said this before, I think sometimes I wish that people were I know it stings not to get the job, but sometimes I wish that people were more explicit in saying, you know, you're probably not a great fit for this job because X, Y, and Z. And so I think part of what makes rejection so difficult but on both sides of the of the job market is that you don't get that feedback and you never really find out what it was that didn't fit, right? I had... I was on the job market, on the academic job market, one fall I did it, and I didn't do like a full-on search. I maybe sent out like 15 to 20 applications, I want to say, and I got one email back from one small college that gave me specific details about how many applications they received and what the characteristics were of the person that they eventually hired, and so, and that was one of those that was one of those positions where I was like, I am perfect for this. Like they had this side thing. I don't remember. It was like uh, event organization or something that I felt that I was really prepared for. And for some, for some reason, for some experience that I had in my CV. And so that when they specified, you know, this person got the job and they have this background and they have this degree, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense why that person got that job over me. And sometimes I just wish that everybody did that, right? But I also know that for us, when we reject projects, we don't always give extensive feedback. Um, because partially because we don't have time to do that, um, partially because we don't want to open ourselves up for criticism or whatever. And so I think that's partially probably the reason that we don't get that help that feedback that could be particularly helpful for any of these different rejections, right? Any of the scenarios that you described in your answer and in, in the things that you were saying earlier, the different things that you had applied for and the rejections that you had received, uh, it would be helpful to get that feedback, but there might be reasons on the other side for why they're not sharing that feedback, even though that might be difficult for us to for us to handle. But again, I think the question of fit is always something that um, that's a that's a huge factor, and that's probably a good thing to sort of fall back on once you've processed that sting, is to tell yourself, well, it probably wasn't a good fit. It doesn't mean that I'm not qualified or that I'm not good at what I do, but there's probably something that wasn't quite right that's not my fault or whatever. But it's it can be hard to tell yourself that. And in terms of the process, the application process that you were talking about, I unfortunately felt that the interviewing for these kinds of Altec jobs is, as you say, um, there's a huge fact, a huge part of it is experience. And that's what's so disheartening. You know, you, I think I applied for, for Altec jobs for maybe like somewhere between six and nine months. And probably also went, I don't remember what the exact number of interviews is, maybe like between 15 and 20 or something like that. Uh, that might be high. I'm not sure. But there was sort of a 
process, and I even I even applied for the job that I now have more than once and interviewed for it one other time and got rejected and then still ended up getting the job in the end. So so it was a long process where I had a lot of opportunity to practice those questions. And I would always recommend looking those up online because there are sets of questions that you can find online, especially that initial screen interview that you do for those jobs is usually with an HR person. So that's not going to be super specific to the position that you're applying for. That is going to have some of those more general questions about your leadership style or, you know, whatever other sort of broad questions they might ask you. And it is true, like you get better at answering those over time and with practice. So that's not a great answer. And that's really disheartening. But that's, um, I unfortunately, I think, true. And then I one other thing that I can say is that I have even with practice, it's hard. And I have often shied away from applying for jobs that seemed like they would be a good fit just because I was afraid of that rejection. So definitely recognize that that feeling that my daughter expressed the other day because it's certainly something that I have done. I don't know. Is that something that you can relate to? Oh, sure. I mean, I saw something or you might have seen something in the past where it's like an ad for a college that's like a top tier. And I'm like, is it even worth getting into all this, honestly? Because as you know, our application process is pretty intense. This isn't like just, you know, submit the job app and you're done. It's a lot of work. And then you're asking other people. I shy away from that, honestly, which is pretty ridiculous. But I always feel like guilty having to ask people for letters of recommendation because I have had people say, I had a colleague and I was surprised. She's like, I'm just not really that good at writing. And I was like, but you worked with me for three years and I want to sort of highlight this interdisciplinary nature of how we're working together. You couldn't just cobble something together. So that was kind of strange. And then sometimes when I've asked other people, they're like, well, I can do it, but I'm just really, really busy. And so I almost feel like a sense of guilt. I don't know. So I shy away. I have tended to apply for things where they don't need the letters of recommendation right away. And I do have at least three good, solid people, including our advisor, that I know probably at this point have that letter on deck, you know, so they can just tweak it a little bit. And when I ask them to send it, they could. But I shy away from those. The other thing you made me think of are all the things that are out of our control. And one thing I think it's important to think about and isn't really expressed in these letters is that they already had someone in mind for this job anyway, (laughs) you know, so I know we've talked about that before, but just other things that I've applied for and someone said, well, you know, it's a union job. And I hadn't really, I was like, oh yeah, unions. I love unions. Unions are great. That's not what they meant. They meant that the union probably already has a person in mind that's worked for years and years, or they have a recommendation of their own. And so while the the college is going through sort of the motions of this search, there's someone that they already know is going to be hired. Am I am I wrong about this or am I just being bleak? Do you think that's true? I think that's true. I think that that's I don't know to what extent that's true here. I've applied for a few jobs in Germany trying to move back to Germany and I've gotten the sense there a lot that that's something that they do. And you can often see that in the description of the the job ad. If the job ad is more vague and general, I think it's less likely that they're going to already have a candidate in mind. But if it's like 
super particular with like, we're looking for somebody in 19th century with a pop culture and visual culture, and then also the rhetoric of X, then that sounds like a very particular project and a very particular resume where it's likely that they already have somebody in mind. Yeah, I do. I do think that that's true in some cases and that I've, and, and again, like you said, I've also shied away from submitting applications for particular jobs when I got that sense from the job ad. Although I also recall when we were in grad school and we started applying for these jobs, the advice from our faculty was a lot of times the search committee, they just put everything on there and they don't really know who they want yet. So even if something sounds particular or there's like four or five different fields and you only cover three of them, but you have one other really cool thing, uh, apply anyway, because a lot of times the search committees will look through and, and be like, oh, we didn't even know we were looking for this person. So I think it can go both ways. It's hard to make sense of these job ads sometimes. And I think I've told the story where I went and apply and um, and spoke, interviewed for a position that where I thought that I really was a good fit for the job description. And then I and then the person that was interviewing me put a description in front of me and said, you know, just to remind you of what the job description was. And it was not what I remember the job description to be. Uh, I don't want to say like 100%, but I'm fairly certain that she gave me a job description that didn't match what she had posted. And she then made me feel guilty for wasting her time to interview for the position, even though she had my CV or my resume in hand, and I didn't actually have the job description that that she was trying to hire for. So some, and those things are really frustrating and hurtful, but, at, but in those, I, for that scenario, I just had to like walk away and be like, I'm, that's not, I was so mad and I was so frustrated because I had to get childcare to even make it to the interview. And then I was being treated like I was the one who had wasted her time and I felt so wronged and but I just had to like walk away from it and be like, that would have been a horrible fit. I would not have wanted to work for that person. So sometimes it's sometimes those are the takeaways too. Like, right. Like that wouldn't have been the spot for me. I just yeah. have trouble with the ones, like we said, you never hear back and you're reading the ad. And this applies to academic and alt act jobs for me that when I was kind of in between jobs or working as a part-time faculty, I think I applied for probably 15 different roles at our former college because I'm like, I could do that. It's not teaching, but it's a job that involves writing, talking to people, giving presentations, doing some PR. I could do that. I know I could. But like just the not knowing makes me start to doubt myself. And then this all, of course, ties back to our favorite topic again, which is that imposter syndrome. Like, well, obviously, it's not that they're, you know, they're not calling you because there's something wrong with you, Aaron. There's something that they figured out that you're, you know, so I have to sort of like bolster myself with no, they just maybe are looking for someone and like you said, without a PhD, because sometimes that means more pay. I also have um, right. thought about going back into K through 12. And in some cases, I have heard anecdotally, at least, that it can be harder for a PhD to get a job in K through 12, because that means on the STEP program that you'll be getting some of the highest pay in the district. So that was a caveat as well as to why I never really got into pursuing that post PhD, because not everyone wants a PhD because that means you're going to be at the top of the pay scale. So I've had to really rethink that it's not necessarily me. It could be any one of these other aspects or issues we've talked about. And so 
like I said, let's try and learn from it. Let's try and move forward. I don't know if we have anything else to say about those apps and processes, but it just it made me think more about like all the things we end up applying for in our time in grad school and after. And we're just really putting ourselves out there. And as we've noted, it seems like so many of us in this world of academia are kind of the more thoughtful, sensitive folk. And then we're just putting in our, our all the time, we're applying for a GTA spot. We had to apply for those. We had to apply sometimes for grants and then even like those postdoc positions. So it seems like throughout our entire career, we're applying for things where we may possibly risk being rejected. So I don't know if we have any good coping strategies for any of this. Do you have any good takeaways, Eudix? I know you're definitely more of the mindful of the two of us. I think you do a lot more introspective thinking about self-care. Did you have anything thinking about this? Uh, or are we just all kind of trying to go one step at a time through this process of apply, hope for the best, try not to become completely defeated when we don't hear back? Yeah, I don't know that I have too much else other than sort of going back to successes that you've had in the past. I mean, I think the most important thing is always a rejection when you get a rejection is to read it and take note of it and then walk away from it for a day or two before you start thinking about it more deeply just because it can be so difficult with that initial shock and that initial disappointment. Um, and then to turn it into something positive sometimes just requires a little bit of distance and a little bit of processing the feedback that you get. I remember when I was in um, when I was at the college in Germany, I, I there was a master's program that I wanted to sign up for, and they had just recently, or that I wanted to apply for. It was sort of selective, and they had just recently changed. The, the Bologna process had just recently been sort of completed and they were changing all of these things from like the old European systems to the more internationally applicable um, bachelor master systems, supposedly internationally applicable. And I had applied for it right away because it was really exciting and interesting. It was this interdisciplinary program that was, you know, it was a little bit of linguistics and a little bit of literature and philosophy and theology. And it just seemed really great. And I applied right away and I got rejected and they sort of said, you are an interesting candidate, but you just don't seem quite ready yet. And so that was really hard to take because I did think of myself as like such a, you know, great student and whatnot. But then I sort of put it away and I actually went abroad for a year and then when I came back, I reapplied and I actually did make it in and I did fairly well for myself in the program. So that process is something that I often return to where I'm like, remember that time, like the first time it really stung when I got rejected. But once I sort of spent more time and reapplied later and started taking the classes, I was like, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have been ready to do this like two years ago. And so sometimes it's not the right fit and sometimes it's just not the right time. And so I think sort of taking that step back and then thinking back to other times where you have succeeded or where there has been a good fit or you know, where a little bit of time and distance has made it better, I think can give you that little nudge of confidence that you need to try again. And sometimes when you do try again, it it does go well. And so that's one thing that I 
that I can think of in terms of um, strategies for coping with all of this. I also think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about how we're helping our kids through rejection and the fear of rejection. Do you have any ideas? Have you had any scenarios with your kids where they were struggling with rejection? And have you come up with any strategies that have helped you deal with them or help them deal with that? Well, like you said, it happens all the time early on, whether it's auditioning for a play or getting rejected from a social group or entering a contest or a grade. Two things that you made me think of when you were just speaking there. The first is that asking for help can be so critical. And I know this must seem so obvious, but you made me think of how sometimes my children are hesitant to ask me for my help. But paralleling that, I'm often a little private about some of the things I'm applying for. I've often submitted things to journals without letting anyone see them. It might make sense to say to a trusted friend or colleague, I'm thinking of sending in this journal article. Would you give it a read through before I do that? Or say you've applied for Alt-Act jobs. Could you give me a little guidance and feedback before I go and do this on my own? I'm not really good at that. So I'm thinking that that could be an interesting takeaway because I've seen that in my own children's behavior. So I guess they're getting it from me where I'm like, so my son is working on a speech for a forensics competition. And I'm like, you know, would you like me to read this over? I work in the field of communication. Could I help you or assist you? And he's like, no, 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 no. Very private. And it is a balancing act because I want him to be autonomous. I want him to kind of go perform the speech to the best of his ability. But I'm also like, you have resources and a person here who is an expert. Can you just please take the help I'm trying to provide for you? Now, you did. I don't know. I think sometimes it can be a little bit good for our children to go through some rejection, but it's also really hard for us to watch, you know, like I don't like that. Um, my daughter auditioned for their school play and it's the first time she's done this type of play. It's a musical. She's done a bunch of plays with another little theater group and she's really good and fun and quirky. I don't think the people at school know this. And so she came back. She's like, yeah, I just got a really stupid part. It's like basically in the chorus. And I just had to explain to her that in this group, you're new. They haven't seen you. They don't know what you can do. So it's kind of like what you're saying. Let's try this this year and you'll be successful. And maybe the next year, you know what to draw upon. But it's really hard to watch my children deal with rejection, whether that's in the form of social rejection or academic rejection. I find it to be a challenge as a parent to watch them go through that, but then also give them a little bit of freedom and autonomy to experience those because like we're saying, this is the real world and you and I have just enumerated a number of rejections we've had to deal with and make it through. Right. So, right. you know, yeah, I think that's really difficult to sort of watch our kids live with that disappointment and not to try to fix it. And I tried to look into a little bit what sort of the experts recommend for helping our kids deal with rejection and what I came up with was mostly sort of things that precede the actual rejection. So I found a couple lists that were like, these are things that you can do to help, but they're all sort of um, tips for providing our kids with a mindset that makes it easier to process rejection, if that makes sense. So a lot of it is the growth mindset that we already talked about, making sure that, you know, the kids understand that failure is important and that they feel safe and that they can bring us that failure and 
another tip that I found was to comfort and validate their experiences. So to allow them to sit with the disappointment, I think that's really important. And I think that's, you know, something that I was bringing, trying to bring up earlier, where, you know, it's, important not to say, oh, you'll get it next time or like, oh, maybe you'll get it next time or whatever. But just to be like, that was really disappointing. I understand. Uh, or, you know, I know that you were really hoping to get this or whatever. Um, I'm so sorry it didn't work out. You must feel very disappointed or something like that to just really acknowledge how disappointing and crushing that can be uh, rather than being like, oh, well. And I think Something that I wanted to mention, too, that's especially difficult for our children that I seem to have observed a little bit is that a lot of things are um, organized around rewards and highlighting the one special student that did something particularly well. And so if everything is a competition and I, you know, and I'm not saying that, like, I'm not a proponent of like participants trophies or something like that. I'm not, you know, like there are certain things when you play a game, some people win and some people lose and that's fine. And, you know, we need to understand that too. But there are so many things where it's like this one person gets identified as like the outstanding candidate. And it feels like that sort of um, uh, neglects that other maybe other students also worked really hard or or whatever and so our kids become focused on that one thing like with this um with this art uh program this art award that my my daughter was trying to work toward this week it's there's i was struggling to find language to be like even if you don't win you still like drew a really really cool picture um, and you spent a lot of time on it and you dedicated yourself to it and you had a lot of fun doing it. And, you know, so that's really valuable, too. So that's something I think that makes it harder for kids to not struggle with the rejection because there's so much emphasis on, you know, I highlighting this like one special case, if if that makes sense. I get that. And that's still, unfortunately, kind of the culture we're in and we are very awards driven. I am as well. But making the time to say exactly what you said, like you did your best, you did something pretty cool. It was a good experience. And I guess that echoes what we were saying earlier, which is like sometimes it is about the experience. You know, it's not always about the end result being winning or getting the job, but you got some interesting experience. OK, you wrote this thing. You did this thing. You didn't get the first place blue ribbon award, but you did do something that's pretty neat and that you should still be proud of. And that is tricky. I think especially the younger the children are, we're also in this like very instantaneous, instant gratification kind of world. And yeah. my children get really upset and frustrated when they don't pick up things immediately because I think just everything is so accelerated. So they get really frustrated when they don't do something well right away. And they kind of just say, well, that's it. I'm done with it. And they, I think, need to process this idea that like, you need to take time and effort and you're not automatically awesome at basketball after playing one time. So that's right. Work on as right. Well. Yeah, that's really that's really funny. We just had that same argument about a Rubik's Cube um, because there's videos online of people solving the Rubik's Cube in one or two minutes. And so we had to have a conversation about, well, this person has done it a lot of times in longer than one or two minutes before they sat down and videotaped themselves doing it in one minute. And so, yeah, I think, it, you know, it comes back down to resilience, which I think is the key term that, you know, that always sort of 
comes up in all of these conversations. If our kids are resilient, then they're probably more likely to handle rejection well. And the same goes for us if we are resilient and and have sort of experience with um, processing failure and allowing failure and understanding that that's important to succeeding, then we're much more likely to process that rejection well and easily. But it's hard. It's definitely hard. But you've made me feel so much better over the course of this episode. <laughs> I don't feel like this is so awful. That's awesome. And, you know, honestly, I did submit it for a conference. So it's all good. Good. But I just got frustrated waiting, too. I was like, it's been like three months. I need to figure something out or I need to start thinking about a new thing. I can't wait this long. I think I'm exaggerating. Well, no, November, December, and yeah, January. That is definitely um, three months. So I was like, I'm going to do something else with this. I need to awesome. think about something new. So I think this has been really great. And I'm certain that our listeners can relate. And if there's other rejections that we forgot about, or maybe you have some successful ideas about how to channel that and move that energy forward in a positive direction, we'd love to hear from you. But you did, let's revisit the hacks. We haven't covered any great hacks in a long time. Maybe that's just because we're trying to make it one day at a time here in Michigan with our cold winter and pandemic conditions. But uh, you did say you found a new hack that you wanted to share with us. What was that all about? Well, so recently I came across this article and I I love to hear, I'll look forward to hearing from other, from our listeners to see if they find this um, promising. I haven't implemented it too much, but I have thought about it. I've given it a lot of thought and I have sort of, I have some thoughts about how I can implement it. So as you know, I have been um, a little crazy about the to-do lists. Um, I am a very... Uh, avid to-do list writer I'll, have been for a long time. It makes me happy to check things off my to-do list. I have also been known to add things to my to-do list after I have already done them just to be able to check them off. So the to-do list has been a staple in my life. And I recently came across an article that is called The Case Against To-Do, to-do Lists and what, you, what to Use Instead. And so my first, um, my first response was not the most positive, but then I kind of... Uh, um, I didn't I didn't really appreciate that somebody was trying to take my to-do list away from me. But once I dug into it a little bit, I felt that it was a pretty convincing argument. Uh, it made a lot of sense what the author was describing because he is basically talking about how the to-do list really um, is sort of or the the premise is that a lot of us are really good about adding things to our to-do list and throughout the day adding more things and not and a lot of us are not very good about actually having a solid estimate of how long is something is going to take us and especially i feel this to be true with children when you have constant interruptions or you don't really know you know what how many times you have to go back to it or whatever. And so what you end up with at the at the end of the day is a to-do list that has some things checked off, but a lot of things not checked off. And so you end up with a sort of like guilt and the nagging in the back of your mind about all the things that you didn't get done. Um, and it starts to form into these larger narratives about who you are. Like, I'm a procrastinator. I can't, you know, really, I can't figure out how long things are going to take me, etc. And so um, what, and the, and the other aspect of it is that to-do lists are um, a way of 
distracting us from larger projects that are actually important. So I can procrastinate on something important when I have a to-do list with a bunch of small tasks. As long as I check something off, I'm being productive, right? But I'm not spending the time on things that actually matter to me or on the larger projects that are more pressing or more challenging or more daunting. But I'm still being productive because I'm checking things off over here on my to-do list. So, and then and then the final reason, the final thing that, that the author says is bad about to-do lists is that they tend to take over the unfinished tasks tend to sort of linger in our minds and take over the time after work that we're trying to spend with our kids. We were sitting on the floor trying to build a castle with our kids. And in the back of our mind, there's all these unchecked boxes, right? So here comes the, now comes the twist. This is what we're supposed to do instead. Instead of the to-do list, you can tell that I'm really excited about this. Obviously, this is a topic that um, excites me a great deal. Uh, so instead of the to-do list, um, the author suggests to use a schedule. So we plan a schedule at the beginning of the week, plan blocks of time, and say, during this time, I will be, or I will be spending this block of time on X, on reading this particular paper, on answering emails, on doing whatever. And so instead of saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to clear my inbox because I don't know how long that's going to take me or even having a numerical goal, like I'm going to answer 20 emails. I can say from nine to 10 every morning, I'm going to answer my emails. I'm going to get answered what I get answered. And then um, I can, and then I move on to the next schedule block on my schedule, right? So this has actually, this has three advantages. It, al it allows you to measure yourself not by what you finished, but whether you did what you said you would do, right? So I can say I spent an hour on emails or um, I didn't do that. But then, and, and so, you know, to dedicate yourself, then, then, you can then you can check whether or not you spent the time with the, in the way that you had intended to spend the time without getting yourself distracted. So that becomes sort of like the measure of success. And I think this would have been a really helpful approach for me when I was in grad school because it just took me always, it always took me so much longer to get reading done than I anticipated and than I thought it would. And especially like reading for classes and articles that we were reading. So if I, instead of putting on my to-do list in the morning, I need to read this article if I had said, I'm going to read from 10 to 12 in the morning, then I'm going to take a break and then I'm going to read again from whatever, one to three or whatever my most productive times in the day in the day were, I think I would have been able to feel a lot better about myself if I had then actually spent the time reading from 10 to 12 because then I could have said, okay, that was my plan and I did that. Um, so I So I really like that. And then the other perk of that is, if you're scheduling time, then you can say after 4 p.m. or whatever is feasible. I know that that's more feasible for me than other people that work in the academy. Um, after 4 p.m., that time is dedicated to spending with my kids. And so then I can sort of get this to-do list out of the back of my head um, because what that time frame is dedicated to um, is spending time with my kids or making dinner or whatever. And so I'm not, I'm not, not doing something that's nagging at the back of my mind. Um, so the, his argument is that there is research that supports that you're less likely to be distracted if you work with scheduled time block and you're less likely to feel guilty for using downtime actually for downtime or to spend quality time with your family, because that is what you have dedicated the time block to be. I don't know. I, th this was sort of like mind blowing to me. I, I, this might be really obvious to other people. Um, 
in that case, I <laughs> I apologize for, you know, for going into so much detail and depth about this. But I thought, you know, if there are other list writers out there, this might be an interesting thing to kind of think about and, and look at a little bit more. And we'll uh, share the link to the article, the case against to-do list and what to use instead in our show notes. And if people want to, you know, tell us what they think about the article or about this concept in general, I would love to hear it. I don't know. Are you more of a to-do list maker or more of a schedule builder, Erin? Or do you do neither? <laughs> I was going to say C. No. Uh, honestly, I was thinking that this sounds a little bit... I do a little bit of both. I don't think I'm nearly as organized or kind of like um, meticulous in my planning. I would say that I think the approach you're describing now lends itself incredibly well to using the Google Calendar, which is kind of how I roll during the week because my supervisors and my colleagues can see what I'm doing. And I just block off time usually that says, you know, here's the time prepping and grade time, eight to 10, class time, 11 to 12, 15, and then maybe another block that says something like contact the uh, fast track program candidates between one and two or something like that. I do make little lists sometimes. I'm not, I don't, I don't let them, it's not something like, I'll just make a list for me to remember. I don't really worry about even, I probably don't even check it off to be honest. So that's where we probably are a little different. I'm just like, okay, what is it that I need to make sure I get done today? Um, as far as work stuff, I have to remember to do this, this, and this. And I kind of jot it down somewhere. It's nothing formal. And then I just want to make sure that I remember that. It's more for me to remember. But I do a little I bit think of you both, you know? I, yeah. And I think that you still need some kind of to-do list with the schedule approach. I think you still need to be able to have a list in front of you with everything that you need to accomplish that week or something like that so that you can have a general sort of good sense of how to how to schedule your time blocks. I don't think that it completely eradicates the to-do list, but it sort of takes focus away from it and to the extent that it doesn't become so such a sort of driving force of everything that those that are, you know, more to-do list driven. Um, right. For us. You don't want the list just, to take over yeah. either. Like you don't want exactly. to be the list to be the thing that's a stressful thing or making the list or making the list of the list of other lists where yeah. that's becoming a mode of procrastination, right? Like procrastinating, yeah. putting off doing things by making lists and lists and lists. Oh, and, I know oh, everything you know. about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if this uh, resonates with anyone or we have list makers or schedule blockers, I bet we do. How else would you have gotten through your PhD without some sort of organization? We'd love to hear from you. Judith, as always, where are we on Instagram and where can they find us via Gmail? Our Instagram handle is PhD in Parenting. And if you want to send us an email, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us, reach us at PhD in Parenting podcast at gmail.com. All right. I think that was a really productive episode. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much for listening. And Judith, do you want to take us home today? Thanks, everyone, for listening this week and every week. And we look forward to coming back soon. Bye.